1: Welcome to this replay of Ask NT Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at PremierUnbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's PremierUnbelievable.com. And now, for today's replay, of Ask Anything. Welcome back to another edition of the Ask entry Write Anything podcast. Uh, we throw all kinds of things at you every <laughs> couple of weeks, Tom, and today is no different. We're doing probably one of the biggest questions uh, that has existed since time immemorial, the problem of evil and suffering. I'm not expecting you to <laughs> solve it necessarily <laughs> today, but um, it, it is posed in some interesting ways today. Um, I suppose... Whenever we come to do a podcast and questions and you're there as the person answering them, I suppose it's always with the caveat that um, there are some things don't really have very neat packaged mm-hmm. answers, do they? And we can only give people ways to try and think through mm-hmm. things. And, and everyone's different as to how they're ultimately going to resolve some of these big questions in their sure. own mind. Sure. Yeah, th- that's undoubtedly true. And uh, the
2: question of the problem of evil is is the archetypal one. Mm. And I've come to the view that that even though we don't have a good answer to the way the question is normally posed or has been in the last 200 years, 300 years anyway, we do have a very good answer for why we should expect that problem to come up in the way that it does. Mm. And that is, if we believe that God is the good and wise creator, then evil doesn't make sense. And, and, And that's the point. And the danger then is, if we as clever theologians or philosophers think we can make sense of it, Then we're saying that actually God created a world within which, yeah, there's a place for evil and we'll let evil exist so that it can do this and that and the other, which is actually a very dark conclusion to reach. Mm. Um, And of course, people can pose the question then in terms of Genesis 3, where did the snake come from? Why why was there a snake in the garden in the first place? Um, And There is something then about the freedom of God and the freedom which God gives to creation um, which remains a mystery. But I remember when I was teaching in Oxford, one of my fellow examiners one year for the for the finals paper set a question: Would it be immoral to try to solve the problem of evil? <laughs> and I remember looking at that and thinking, what an odd thing. And then I thought, mm. oh yes, I see. Because if you were able to say yes, we understand why there is evil, so because it, this and this and this, take we've solved that one. Then what you're saying. Is something pretty drastic about the way the world is. Mm. And I bet you can guess who the examiner in question was. No, I could tell Rowan Williams. Oh, (laughs) very good. (laughs) So perhaps we should expect that. Um, And I think that, I think Rowan would say emphatically, actually, it would be immoral because you would then be accusing God of having made a world in which this was just part
1: of the way stuff was. Mm. Well, there's one general question which I think sets. Sets the scene up really uh, quite well from Deb in Garland, North Carolina, who uh, emails in to say, hello, I'm an atheist who's interested in faith. Could you explain free will and how it (laughs) relates to evil? I've had Christian friends explain that we've been given free will to love God, but also free will to do evil. But that makes it sound as if God allows cruelty to happen to innocent people so that he or it or she can be loved. Am I misunderstanding the concept of free will and the reason behind it? By the way, I've just started your book, Paul for Everyone, (laughs) Romans Part One. There we go. Well, well, funnily uh, enough, that that will cover some of this ground, won't it, of course? A bit,
2: a bit. Though I'm delighted if somebody who's a self-confessed atheist would be starting with a commentary on Romans. (laughs) Great place to start in all sorts of ways. Um, Though there there, there might be other places you could start Mm. as well. But wherever you start, just find your way through, I would say. Um, Of course, part of the puzzle is that for the atheist, uh, there isn't a problem. Mm. Um, uh, for the atheist there's a problem of good Mm. because if the world is simply the random product of blind chance with atoms bouncing off each other or swerving as in epicureanism and and just producing new life forms there is no reason to suppose that we would like the resultant um, mess um, and the problem with natural selection, which is a way of solving that problem, to say, well, survival of the fittest, so we're getting better and stronger and better and stronger, is that uh, the survival of the fittest assumes lots and lots and lots of unfit life forms, mm. which just fall by the wayside. And so uh, if you go that um, it's basically new, new epicurean forms of, of philosophy then you really have a problem why would we say that anything is good and the answer that the epicurean gives is oh good simply means I like this right. um, but actually that's not what most people mean by good mm. and if, if somebody tortures somebody else and then when challenged says well I like doing this most
1: of us would say sorry that's not good enough mm. and, um, and and even if those I mean many people have tried to Still tie it to a naturalistic account of good, saying, Well, we know that torturing people is bad for the f- flourishing yeah, of yeah, our yeah, species yeah, yeah, in yeah, an evolutionary yeah. sense. Even that I found doesn't really get sure. to the root of why we disagree with with it it's it's not a utilitarian argument quite
2: there is an innate moral sense and even though that does vary from culture to culture in certain interesting ways um it can't quite be eradicated and one of the things i've tried to argue in the gifford lectures is that there are certain things like justice spirituality relationships beauty freedom truth and power which all of them have a certain draw across cultures and across time but equally all of them are puzzling because we we know that justice matters but we all are inclined to bend it when it's in our own favor mm. um, or seems to be in our own favor and same with truth and, and, and power and so on um, and that's part of the problem of being human in this world and that's part of setting the parameters for why um, questions like the problem of evil have to be dealt with within this larger whole it's not enough to say here are these things which we deem to be evil both human evil and so-called natural evil though whether an earthquake is evil or not mm. it's just what the earth's crust does um and you know. but it
1: produces suffering if oh, yeah. people of build houses of and skyscrapers on it. of course, of it. course. absolutely uh, and, and in in a sense though the this specific question is about um free will and, yes. and that's there's been a typical defense of, yes. of evil being yes. that well yes. god gives us freedom yeah yeah um obviously that's enables us to experience love relationship with God with each other all the goods but it comes at the cost of of what we do with uh, on the the negative side quite freedom now I mean part of the
2: problem there is that the puzzle of so-called free will philosophers have been bashing their heads against this forever and you end up if you're not careful so defending freedom that we do end up as random particles we're mm. so free that actually we're just bouncing around mm. and we think we're making choices but really we are so totally free that we're just 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 random nonsenses mm. um and that's why in biblical thought you tend not to get an emphasis on free will as normally conceived philosophically but on responsibility that humans are given the dignity of making choices And uh, as we said in a previous podcast about prayer, God seems to want to work in the world through human beings who are learning to make wise, good, healing choices. The other problem, of course, about free will is that however much you use a free will defense for um saying therefore we humans mess stuff up and maybe that's an inevitable result of the way god made the world that doesn't solve earthquakes and tsunamis and 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 volcanoes and so on and and there the problem is Well, the humans had the responsibility to build houses on that point, but often they didn't know. And this Mm. is why, of course, the Lisbon earthquake in 1755 was such a major philosophical disaster in Mm. the Western world, as well as a a physical and and Mm. human life disaster, that it made people think, if there was a God, he wouldn't have let this happen. Mm. Um, But here's the, the really interesting point that I've puzzled over this has seemed to be a problem in modern western thought since maybe 1650 1700 in a way which it never was in earlier christian thought Mm. you know augustine knows about all these things that happen and he basically says yeah that that's just the way the world is but god is in charge and god will rescue us etc now he often seems to have thought in terms of being rescued from the world and going to heaven. But in the New Testament as well, Jesus and his first followers knew perfectly well that there were things like earthquakes and volcanoes and that people suffer and die in all sorts of ways. Life was, as the phrase goes, nasty, brutish, and short for for a great many Mm. people. And they don't regard that as, oh dear, maybe there isn't a God after all. Rather, they see it in terms of um, the Creator God has set in motion a purpose to rescue the world and to restore and heal the world so that those prophetic visions of new creation, like the wolf lying down with the lamb in Isaiah and so on, these are shimmering in the background as saying there is a God. He is the good creator. There's a real mess at the moment, and he has got his own way of working to solve it, which won't necessarily be the way that we might like,
1: but that's partly because we don't understand his ways. And drawing out this part of the question from Deb, which is, I think, where the crux of it is, can perhaps accept that we need free free will to to choose to love and to to be human and, and all those good things, but says if it means God allows cruelty to happen to innocent people as the cost of that. I I guess Deb is struggling with whether the cost is worth the good, if you like. And and is it a kind of trade-off between the two, ultimately? Well,
2: I mean, that is the great question, which comes in famously in Dostoevsky and elsewhere. Um, uh, Is this the gamble, the risk that God has taken? And the Christian answer comes back again and again to say the story that we tell is a story in which God himself has come in person to take the full force of all that evil onto himself. And one of the. I wrote a little book on the problem of evil ooh, 10 or 15 years ago called Evil and the Justice of God. Mm-hmm. And one of the insights which helped me as I was working through that, it's only a short book, was that the Gospels themselves tell the story of Jesus and his announcing of God's kingdom and his going to the cross. But it's not just about Jesus doing that. As Jesus comes and says, it's time for God to be king, follow me and it's going to happen. Then evil of all sorts seems to be drawn to him as though to a magnet, Mm. that there are plotting scribes and Pharisees and there are shrieking demons in the synagogue and some of his own followers get it wrong and plot against him and, and, and people are out to get him. And the story... You know, it's, it's like the plot of a movie where you realize that from every corner there are insidious forces and whispering voices in his own head. And then the whole thing rushes together, puts him on the cross. And then something has happened on the cross through which the power of that evil is broken. So mm. this isn't a philosophical answer. It's a way of saying that the philosophical question needs to be confronted by the actual Israel narrative reaching its climax in Jesus. And then the church's agenda in the power of the Spirit must be to say, OK, if we are the people who celebrate Jesus' victory over the powers of evil, we must be the people in and through whose communities, injustice, oppression, wickedness, lies are actually being dealt with.
1: And that's why it was interesting that it is this Romans part one that that Deb is studying. Because when I think of a passage that deals with that, it is Romans 8. And and it is the fact that Paul acknowledges we live in this broken world, this in bondage to decay. And yet simply accepts that and says, but we are the ones who are being born for this new world. And and, and that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Yes,
2: yes. And that in, in Romans 8, we who believe in Jesus are being scooped up into that purpose so that the suffering of Jesus through which the basic victory was won is then reinstantiated in the groaning of Jesus' followers as we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We're surrounded by so much suffering and rubbish and horrible things, and we stand there saying, Lord, I'd love to pray about this. I'm not even sure what. And Paul says at that moment, the Spirit is groaning within us, and the Father is listening. And in that dialogue of father and spirit we are being conformed to the image of the son and and so this puts the mystery of the trinity if you like at the heart of the biblical answer to the problem of evil not that it's an answer that will satisfy the philosophers but that it's a way of translating the question into a narrative and historical mode and we are part of that history What's the next book that Deb should
1: read once they've completed uh, <laughs> Ball for Everyone? Well, per- perhaps Evil and the Justice of God. But, okay. Um, yeah. But. Well, whatever helps. So I hope this answer has helped, Deb, and and we wish you the very best in your, your continuing journey as you explore that. Um, moving on to a slightly different angle on this, um, we've talked about you know, some of those classic philosophical issues around free will and and love and evil and so on. But Paul in Kansas asks, um, many of the theodicies I've heard on why God would allow so much suffering and sin in the world are predicated on the necessity and goodness of free will. But then my question is about the new heaven and new earth. Is this a literal place where believers are gathered with glorified bodies who love God? Does not this new state of existence also require the presence of free will? And would not that in turn necessitate the possibility of another fall or sin itself. And, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. Are are we somehow experiencing free will in a different way in the new creation that doesn't mean the possibility of sin? Uh,
2: It it is a great question, and I think the New Testament is very much aware that that question could be raised. And I think, though it's a very dark passage, that that's why towards the end of the book of Revelation uh, that the Satan, the old dragon, is released for a short time and then is finally given his total comeuppance and i think that's a richly symbolical way of saying we can imagine that there might be a snake in the new garden but actually the snake has done his worst Mm -hmm. and we are quite sure that 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 he's been dispatched so that's that's one possible way in another way is to say this is the problem with our analysis of free will Mm. And the use of that free will defence could push in that direction. It's interesting, in America at the moment, much more than in Britain, I think there are quite a lot of younger Christians who are being quite philosophically savvy in a way that their British counterparts probably aren't, um, but who get sometimes a kind of a rationalistic apologetic, which mm-hmm. would include that sort of free will defence. And I want to say, just just be careful what you do with that, because it does lead you into strange places. And part of the dynamic of freedom in the new testament is that uh, as paul would say we are set free from slavery to sin in order to be enslaved to righteousness Mm. and that's paul is saying that as a deliberate paradox in romans 6 but then he fills that out in romans 8 with the doctrine of the holy spirit and the point of the spirit is that when the spirit is at work then we are truly free and Mm. there is a freedom about that and um this this is uh (sighs) it's like if I'm driving a car I am free I'm free to steer into the path of an oncoming truck I'm free to steer off the road into a ditch but actually if I use those freedoms I will not be free to drive this car anymore I may not even be free to be alive anymore Mm. and so uh, freedom is a little more complicated than simply I can
1: do what I like Um, and and you've used that I know the, the analogy of music before that it's only once we have learned and understood the boundaries of how yeah, music yeah, works yeah, 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 that yeah. we can then do the improvisation I, I, exactly because we need The boundaries to be free exactly and
2: And certainly improvisation or or the 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 brilliant violinist or pianist who uh, learns to play the concerto by the long hours of discipline I listened to something on the radio Mm -hmm. the other day professional pianist talking about the boringness of practice take the same phrase over and over you play it backwards and sideways and, and he said only when you've done that for a few hours then when you come to play that sonata concerto whatever it is there is a freedom. You Mm. can now pour yourself into Mm. it, knowing that your fingers will do what they should. And this is the paradox of freedom and virtue, Mm. that virtue is a second nature. It's a second freedom, if you like, that you submit yourself to the discipline of learning the stuff in order that you can then freely practice it.
1: And and mm. this this I suppose is, is the answer we might give to the to, to the skeptic who says, Why would I want to be a Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about rules and regulations. I want to be free. Well yeah, the fact yeah. is you're, you're in bondage to something else. We were yeah, yeah, always master yeah. to something or sure. other. Um, and mm-hmm. we might yeah. as well make it God and his well, good. Might as Well,
2: yes, quite. <laughs> that will be quite demanding. But but yes, I mean, that's part of the appeal of the gospel. If the Son sets you free, you will be genuinely free. Right. Uh, and that's very controversial when Jesus says that to his Judean interlocutors. They say, we've never been slave to anyone, which is an odd thing for first century Jews to say, but they do. Um, and Jesus says, no, there is a deeper sense of freedom. And therefore, it's really about... What does it mean to be human? And being human doesn't mean being free like somebody, you know, supposing I'm randomly dropped from a helicopter into a strange city where I know nobody, but I've got some money in my pocket. I'm free to do what I like all day, but I really have no idea what I ought to be doing. Well, that's a sort of freedom. But actually, it's not nearly as exciting and interesting mm-hmm. as the freedom which I have when there's a well-planned trip mm-hmm. to somewhere that I know and love where I can go to a football match or a music event or whatever it might be. And I'm totally free because I have made the effort to be within this context which enhances who I am instead of just wandering around thinking, what am I doing here? You know?
1: Well, I, there are two, two kind of different strands that we've taken there in this whole discussion on evil and freedom. Um but I hope that's helped both Paul and Deb. Uh, my, my Where I've often simply landed is that there are no easy answers to the problem <laughs> of evil. Sure. But for me, I'd rather live with evil and suffering as a mystery in Christianity than it simply being meaningless, as you said, in a purely atheistic worldview. And, uh, and, and that's, I
2: mean, the, the classic thing, which I think it was Martin Luther said, there are certain things we can understand by the light of nature. But there are mysteries there which we can only understand in the light of grace. And even within the grace of the Christian life, there are things which we can't understand, which we will understand in the light of glory. Now, I would want to nuance his vision of the future somewhat differently, but it's as though at every stage we should expect there to be mysteries and puzzles. And if there weren't, then I'm not sure that God would be God. He would just be a function of our little limited understandings.
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus's death, resurrection, and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash ntwright. That's premierinsight.org forward slash ntwright. Thank you.
1: Let's turn to... Uh, another set of issues now we've talked uh, about the big philosophical question theological question of of evil suffering um, free will this is a much more practical how we how we are to live uh, as Christians in the world that we find ourselves Mm -hmm. in Um, and these questions are both been submitted by Doug Stewart from the libertarian Christian podcast if people enjoy this podcast they may also enjoy Doug's one Um, and the first question uh, from Doug is Tom many Christians like to use the Bible as a moral guidebook and extrapolate from that what their fellow citizens must live by. And the debate tends to circle around what good biblical politics looks like. Personal moralism on the one side and corporate moralism on the other. But can Christians really take the scripture and use them to tell the rest of their country what laws they must live under? Does this get too close to a theocracy? Great question.
2: And it looks very different from America than it would in Britain, or indeed in France, or indeed Mm. Germany, or indeed Africa, etc, etc. In other words, um, I understand where in America things have swung this way and that because um, by constitution, 240 years ago, whenever it was, they said church and state separate. And that's been very difficult to live with, Mm. and many Americans today are now having to come to terms with the fact that actually, if you say total separation, then you can have an atheistic state which goes charging off and does its Mm. own thing, leaving the Christians who thought they were in quite a friendly environment Mm. feeling decidedly discriminated against. But how do you put that back together without... Uh, producing the sort of nonsenses that many people think were going on under rather fierce Calvinistic legislation mm-hmm. earlier on, etc., etc. In Britain, we don't have that discussion. We have a very different one. And we have muddled along with an uneasy alliance, in a very British fashion, of church and state, which um, Americans look at and say, how does that work? And the answer is, well, it doesn't, it doesn't. And, and you have to sort of live with it, and, and yes. it's, it's all very peculiar. Um, but we don't have that extreme separation. So then the question comes, actually kingdom of God is a theocracy, but the problem with theocracy is which theos have you got? Mm. Um, and when people hear theocracy, they often think of a big, bullying, angry God who has given a hotline to him to certain people, um, call them clergy or whatever, and they will simply tell you God's um, decisions and you've got to get in line or you have your head chopped off or whatever. And of course, we know that there are some religions and some regimes that have behaved and indeed are behaving like that as we speak. The difference with Christianity is that the Theos in question, who is the Theos of the theocracy, is the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ, who says, I love you so much I'm giving my son to die for you. I love you so much I'm putting my spirit within you so that you can be genuine humans. Now, I like the idea of that Theos running the world, and I notice that that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, the hungry for justice people, um, uh, peacemakers, etc., That's how theocracy works by ordinary prayerful people being peacemakers, hungry for justice folk, etc., etc. And, of course, that's bitty and messy because the God who God is doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in that lot, the little people who are grieving over the ruin of the world and determined by the Spirit to do Mm. something about it. Um, Now, I, I like that theocracy. But you can't translate that theocracy straight onto the statute book, because as the early Christians knew, there are many religions and and life forms out there. And so the church from the beginning was a new sort of politics, Mm. which both was and wasn't competing with the existing ones. I mean, by saying Jesus is Lord, it's quite clear it means Caesar isn't. But when then Caesar decides three or four centuries down the track that so many of his subjects have become Christians that he wants to get on board with that, Uh, that's a very dangerous and risky moment. But the answer isn't, oh, no, please go on persecuting us because we'd be so much more authentic to be a beleaguered minority. The answer has to be, okay, so what's this going to look like? And presumably it means creating a wise and safe environment in which the church can do what it does best, which is looking after the poor, healing the sick, bringing education to everybody, etc. Those three things, by the way, looking after the poor, medicine and education, have been part of the church's DNA from the beginning. Mm. We think that's odd in the Western world because the state does those now um, and tells the church to get its hands off. But actually, that's what we've always
1: been good at. And and it's difficult, isn't it? Because we we obviously live in in the afterglow of a, a kind of Christendom uh, in the yeah, West to yeah, some extent, yeah, sort of, uh, where to mm. some extent the state did sort of because it has been shaped by a Judeo-Christian mm-hmm, worldview mm-hmm, mm-hmm. take on those responsibilities, sure. and then the church sort of forgot that it was also supposed to be to be doing that. Sure, and and. Sure. Some, some have argued, and I don't know if this is Doug's position, but that, OK, let's let the state do what it does and let's let the church do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, and yeah, we shouldn't yeah. be too concerned about whether yeah, the state yeah. does or doesn't reflect Christian and values. I, th- I
2: think the question then is this is going to vary enormously from place to place. I remember at the Lambeth Conference um, 10 or 11 years ago um, being with some uh, Christians from Myanmar. And they were talking about whether there are one or two members of the ruling elite, the hunter or whatever they were, who were closet Christians. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, if you live in a country like that, all the questions of church and state and Christian freedom and law and so on look totally different, totally different yeah. from either if you live in a muddled country like mine or if you live in a country like America, which had this big, rather rigid typically 18th century split you know yes. very, very Thomas Jefferson um, and uh, I, I want to say we need to become more savvy at navigating our own histories in, in, in those moments and saying, this is where we are now. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus in this place now? Um, And I don't think for most of us in the Western world, this means we'll retreat, do our own thing as church, and let the state do its thing, because the church has to have a prophetic voice vis-a-vis the state. In John 16, which happened to be my morning reading this morning, by nice coincidence, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, and explains that a bit. And I remember, I may have said this to you before, for years thinking, what a great thing, the Spirit holding the world to account. And then it suddenly dawns on me, uh, Jesus doesn't give the Spirit in general terms. Jesus gives the Spirit to his followers so that his followers can hmm. hold up the mirror to power and say sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you want to know what that looks like in John's Gospel, read John 18 and 19, where Jesus confronts Pontius Pilate and argues with him about kingdom and truth and power. And Pilate eventually kills him, but in the great irony of the gospel, that is the victory of the kingdom, Jesus as king of the Jews, because thereafter new creation is launched, and Pontius Pilate is is yesterday's man, as it were. Um, We only know him because of the creeds of the Christian church. Well, (laughs) pretty much, pretty much. Um, So that is the church's vocation, to figure out what Mm. it would mean to do vis-a-vis our own governments, be they benign or not benign, what Jesus was doing with Pontius Pilate.
1: One more question here from Doug. Uh, if declaring Jesus is Lord means implicitly that Caesar is not, how might Christ's followers live today in a world of American and European empires that are somewhat more democratic than the Roman Empire? They may be, but they may not be. The Romans voted all right, but there was a system,
2: and you had to be rather rich and powerful to get in on the system. That does sound rather like what some of us see when we look across the pond at our American friends, that, you know, in order to be a senator, you have to be a millionaire. In order to be a president, you have to raise multi-millions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know yes it's voted for but there's all sorts of constraints and one of the things I pray for regularly is that God will raise up a new generation on both sides of the Atlantic of wise leaders who will be credible and votable for in a way which actually of late has not been true in my country and perhaps
1: some Americans might say has not been entirely true for them either. Thank you for tackling a wide range of questions (laughs) on the podcast today, Tom. It's been a pleasure as always, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed listening as well. Uh, Don't forget, you can ask more questions uh, of Tom. We will be uh, recording some more sessions of the podcast soon, so feel free to get them in and uh, avail yourself of all the other bonus content that's available from the website when you subscribe to our newsletter. That's all available from askntright.com. But for now, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us on today's show. Next time we'll be answering more of your pastoral questions that have been sent in. Thanks for being with us and see you next time.